This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today I'm really excited to have David Gerald as our first guest. I was too young to see Star Trek in its prime time. It was a regular experience for me every day in the wonders of reruns. And when, when this book came out when I was 13, I read this book from cover to cover and back again. Because here was a book about thinking about getting into the industry, thinking about getting into Star Trek, how to do a development, what it was all like. And in many ways I thought about like, like oh, this was the little germ of Word Farm too. So it's, it is my great pleasure tonight to kick off our Word Farm weekend and introduce David Gerald. Thank you. Thank you. Well, come on, let's... Uh... Let's do it. Let's do it. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. You could have all been staying at home and watching Republicans free, have a free-for-all, but I, <laughs> I promise we'll stop for the night. We could, we could you know, yeah. do the, a little of that, but uh, let's, have some, let's talk something real for a change. <laughs> we talk, we'll talk a little bit about the idea of teaching, or you being taught writing. There was a great instructor at USC named Erwin R. Blacker. Uh-huh. And he focused on structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that may have been the single most important writing experience, writing class I ever took. Because, uh, oh, I hate it when that sneeze won't happen. Uh, don't you? Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> hello. Uh, anyway, um, but he focused on structure. And so I learned a trick. I don't know if he taught me this or if I made it up of laying out each scene on a four-by-six card, writing just a bare description, and then sorting them out until they were in the right order. Mm-hmm. And that taught me structure, that mm-hmm. little exercise. And around that time, yeah, you're watching TV. And I'm watching TV. This show shows up, Star Trek. And um, nobody else in the industry understood science fiction. Here comes this thing called Star Trek. And I didn't know it at the time. Uh, Harlan, the first season, Harlan Ellison had said to Gene Roddenberry, you must hire science fiction writers because they know what mistakes to avoid. They will tell real science fiction stories. And Roddenberry listened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that first season, you Just had another. Just pillars of I mean, of yeah, but, I mean, these were time. people yeah. who had proven yeah. they knew their way around science fiction. They weren't going to make the stupid mistakes. Hi, I'm Adam. Oh, I'm Eve. Oh, God. <laughs> And at that time, so you, you become fascinated with the idea of writing for it. I, I uh, wrote, uh, the, I, the first episode was September 8th, 8.30, Thursday night, and Monday morning my agent took a 60-page outline into the, <laughs> for a two-part episode. And, uh, Gene so you're Okun, a slow typist. Then. Yeah, I yeah. spent the weekend writing. And uh, um, Gene Okun uh, calls my agent and says, look, this is much too expensive for us to do. We're all bought up for the first season, but... Uh, We'd like to meet this kid and find out who he is. And uh, I went in, Gene Elkun. Um, uh, now, I had previously submitted stories to Bonanza, which they had considered, but then when I went in for a meeting, they said, What are you, 14? I look, I mean, <laughs> so they didn't buy the stories. And I, I, you know, so that was the year before. So, but I, wasn't, I was still pitching. And Star Trek was, I, you know, I, I had hubris, yeah. a bad case. It was, Oh, God, they're going to screw it up. They need someone who knows science fiction. And so Gene Okun said, submit for the second season. And, and, it was I, one, and it still was one of the shows, in most of its iterations, was one of the few shows that 
you know, writers could come in and at from that the outside. Time, at that time, they, the TV industry depended very much on freelance writers. Now it's all writers' rooms and staff writers. So breaking into television, you're not going to do it the way I did. Uh, nobody, I don't think anybody can do it the way I did. I was very lucky. Uh, they, they were desperate for stories that could work in the Star Trek universe, and not a lot of script writers understood either science fiction or the Star Trek universe. They didn't get the limits of what you could do. And, um, and you at first didn't either, right? Because you were talking about, I've, I've read you were talking about you were doing uh, spaceships that they could pro- or space stations that they probably couldn't afford. Yeah, my agent said they can't afford a space station. When, I, when we did the episode, I said, could we do this on a space station? And G- it works better. And Gino Kuhn said, yes, we want to build a space station. We're overdue. Put it on a space station. So that was an important lesson of, not always learning to li- of learning to not always listen to the agent. Sometimes the agent doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, sometimes you uh, have to do what's right, what you know is right, but, you know, God forbid you if you're wrong and you just have that delusion. Oh, yeah, I know what's right. Yeah. Uh, you have to, it's, you're always on this tightrope of am I being delusional again or am I actually in touch with what the story needs? You know? And it sounded like you, you had to have been in touch because they were talking to you at that point and you're, you're young and you get, and you, had, I think, was five treatments that you sent? Yeah, I submitted five outlines. I don't remember all of them. One of them had a a teddy bear-sized creature who responded to negative emotions and projected negative energy out, and the crew turns on Kirk. The idea, which has been stolen about three times now by other Star Trek writers for comic books and whatever... um, but uh, the idea is that the biggest threat is going to be the one you don't recognize. So if you have this nice, really cute, fuzzy creature, you're not going to recognize it as a threat until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea behind Tribbles, that and rabbits in Australia. Um, if you don't, that some Englishman thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we had bunnies in Australia? So he released six rabbits. And in something like 10 years, they were hip deep in rabbits because the dingoes couldn't keep up and there were no natural predators. And even today, there's still a rabbit problem in Australia. They have a rabbit-proof fence that runs across half the continent. So they buy the idea and they give you the opportunity to write this. What happened was, uh, I think Gene was so busy at the time, he wasn't paying attention to what I was submitting because I turned him in in February and they, I hear from him and I, I, you know, they, they kind of kicked me out of school. They said, you're graduating. I said, I want to do a directing project as a senior project. They said, no, you have to do a writing project. I said, you don't have a writing instructor. We'll all read it. So I was really <laughs> angry because I said, come on, I came here to learn how to direct and you don't want to bother with me. So, all right, I'm, you know, I'm not... Mr. Good, good with the social skills, okay? So, oh, well, I wasn't then. Maybe okay. I, I You play very well. Then. Yeah, all right. Yes. I, I don't play well with others sometimes, okay? okay. So anyway, uh, um, uh, they said, go and do a writing project. And, and um, uh, a friend of the family uh, said, look, I can get you a typing job over in the basement of CBS where you typed up the scripts on mimeographs and then you mimeographed them off. <coughs> Google it. It's, it's really scary. But that was how scripts were duplicated for the shows. And um, um, so I was typing scripts for Hawaii Five-0. 
And the dialogue was so awful, I had to physically restrain myself from fixing it while I was. I wanted to. I wasn't alive. It was so tempting. Was, oh my God, who wrote this crap? I can do better. And you did. And it, yeah, and then, so I get this phone call uh, uh, go over to Paramount. Uh, they want to buy your, uh, scri- your outline called A Fuzzy Thing Happened to Me. So I go over, Gino Kuhn. Dorothy Fontana had read the outline and said, This has whimsy. And we haven't done whimsy. Let's. So I go over. Gino Kuhn remembers me. He says, we're going to buy your outline, but we can't buy the script because you have no credential as a writer. But I won't assign it to a real writer for a couple weeks. And if you were to walk in with, and now we can't ask you to do a spec script, but... All right, anyway, it's all detailed in the book that you were holding up, The Trouble with Tribbles, which is available as an ebook on Amazon. So um, I, I went home and in four days wrote the first draft of A Trouble with Tribbles. It was called mm-hmm. A Fuzzy Thing Happened. And uh, then uh, uh, the research department, Kellum DeForest, uh, Joan Pierce, said, well, H. Beam Piper wrote a book called Little Fuzzy, so you can't do A Fuzzy Thing Happened. Can you change the name? Of it? And so I made a list of the silliest words I could think of and then crossed off all the ones that were too silly, and the only one left was Tribbles. And I, I, was, I didn't like it at first, honestly. And I said, well, but it's better than the ones I crossed off. I went in, and I swear to God, this is how the conversation went. I said, uh, um, oh, and, and we can call the creatures Tribbles, and the script can be titled The Trouble with Tribbles. And Gene Kuhn says, okay, that was it. <laughs> you uh, might think, oh, there was some you know, long, involved discussion. No, that was it. It was that easy. Now, you, you, look, we had a budget per episode of $178,000, and that was considered expensive in those days, uh, that we were able to do these episodes at that price still amazes me today. Uh, the more you learn about production and the cost of everything, uh, I'm amazed that Star Trek was able to get on the air. Yeah. And, and also, like, I was looking about the scene and thinking about that, they're on the air with a very mixed race. Yeah. Yeah. And Nichelle Nichols. Walter oh, Kearney. my God. Nichelle yeah. is the most beautiful woman. Well, there's a, it's a toss-up between her and Sophia Loren, who's the most beautiful woman in the world. And I've been in the presence of both of them, and, and it's hard to get my heart started again. It's just, <laughs> oh, they are. And, and, and Nichelle is so much fun as a person. She is just wonderful to be around. And you came in, so you're coming in the second season? Yes. And... Uh, I was, as I was reading the book, the second season, the third season, something I didn't uh, know at the time. So you're shifting did, from did. Roddenberry to Coon? Um, uh, no, let me, let me okay. do yes. this. Uh, uh, I, I did, uh, I'll backtrack. I, okay. I w- went back to uh, CSUN with a stack, a, a document yay thick, and slapped that on. What's this? That's my writing project. What the hell is that? It's an episode of Star Trek. They finished su- shooting it last week. It'll be on the air in the fall. I went pro. (laughs) Look, I was not their best, you know, I was not, you know, I just wanted to learn and they they had their little pets and I wasn't one of them. And so we had this. But I, I, of all the learning experiences I had in college, I have to admit, I have to acknowledge, they were some of the best instructors. Some of the conversations and some of the lessons they taught still ring true in my head today. So as much as I do that story, I give them credit. Now, um, a third season, the show got renewed for a third season. We were supposed to be on 8 o'clock at Monday, mm-hmm. on Monday. 
But there was a summer replacement called Laugh-In that hit so big that they, were, they kept that 8 o'clock Monday slot and NBC moved Star Trek to 10 o'clock Friday night. They broke their promise to Roddenberry. He was so angry that uh, he left the show and brought in Fred Freiberger. Um, Fred Freiberger uh, could bring a script in on time and on budget, but... I don't. I never felt he was. He had the right sense for Star Trek. I never felt the stories were as good. Um, Spock's brain. Oh God. (laughs) Anyway, um, so which has to be uh, almost the worst episode of the entire series. I think Alternative Factor was worse. At least Spock's brain. You could laugh. but uh, not when when they intended. uh, I I came in with an episode uh, called Castles in the Sky, which became. The Cloudminders after several after Margaret Armin rewrote it, so um, uh, it wasn't the happiest experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fred Freiberg was not good for uh, the morale of the show. He was not. He wasn't a people person, um, and uh, but you know he knew production. He knew mm-hmm. production, and and uh, he just wasn't the right guy for Star Trek. Uh, that was my feeling. Anyway. Um, uh, uh, I went off to live in New York for a while, and I I met all of the various editors and publishers of science fiction, people whose names I knew. They're very impressed. You wrote for Star Trek? Wow! So I was able to sell stories and novels in New York because they were impressed that I was a television writer. Later on, when I moved back to L.A., I could sell scripts again. You wrote books? Wow, you must be a real writer. So... uh, so anyway, uh, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, Star Trek, uh, it was a lucky accident because it got my career started in a very big way. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, uh, um, it's a, I consider it a fluke, a lucky accident. I've got to share this story. Uh, I had a party for all my friends from CSUN the night it was aired. And one of my fellow students was a fellow named Bob England, who you may remember as the first Freddy Krueger and uh, he started raving about how good the episode was, how much he liked it, how funny it was. And he didn't know I was that good a writer. And, and it really turned out well. And he's going on at length. And I said, Bob, please stop. It's only one episode of one TV show in 20 years. Nobody's going to remember it. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Challenge accepted, David. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... And, and we'll talk about it a little bit. And it's a reoccurring and enduring thing. So we're going to see a little bit of the animated show. Oh, yeah. Then it returns in Deep Space Nine. And even in the most recent movies, it's a key plot point. This little guy know. saves, you know, saves the I, day. I have, but, and, and, and you don't have the clip here, but it is on the Internet. Uh-huh. Um, there is a Tribble on the International Space Station. Oh. <laughs> uh, Dr. Chell Lundgren. I, I will leap ahead. Dr. Chell Lundgren, an astronaut. Uh, was also a, the astronaut guest of honor at last year's Worldcon. And I was an author guest of honor. So at the introduction part, they had taped an introduction from him where he's floating in the space station. And as he welcomes everybody to the uh, 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 74th, 73rd annual uh, World Science Fiction Convention, uh, and he says, welcome from the International Space Station. He says, oh, by the way, David, you left one of your creatures here. And he tosses a Tribble at the camera, and this Tribble floats in free fall past the camera. Oh, wow. It was like, man, that, so 
I, I always want, I, I'm not sure I want to go in space, but I'm sure glad a Tribble made it. Yeah, yeah. So it's I, a little I, dangerous that there's a Tribble. Yeah, it's there, like, yeah. Houston, we have Tribbles. <laughs> well, well let's, let's, go, let's go back again. Let's go to, let's go to the novels. And that's, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to start with Harley and okay, talk about yes. Harley. And, um, and Harley in a, in a couple of different ways to think about. But um, first and foremost, Harley, for you, as you were talking in the introduction, that came out of a time of questioning, 1968, 1969, and a questioning for you. And it is a book about questions, about uh, a scientist and, and a computer that is... I had seen 2001 only about 30 times. <laughs> and, are you kidding? I mean, it was the Star Wars of it. Yeah, anyway. And uh, um, the most interesting character in the movie is HAL 9000. I thought, well, you know... You don't just turn a computer on and, and have it instantly be this wonderful intelligence. You have to teach it. You have to train it. And I started thinking, when we get to the point that we have intelligence engines, how do you train them? And it'll be like raising a child, and, which I had not done at that time. But I, I, I started thinking, how do you teach someone or something to be conscious? What is the nature of consciousness? And I was going through some, um, hey, I'm looking for the right phrasing. I was going through some very painful emotional adventures of the time. You know, um, uh, uh, somebody I was very close to was murdered, and I was uh, very, um, I don't know how to deal with it. And so I poured all my questions into the book, into those conversations. What is love? What is life? What is death? And... The interesting thing is these are inquiries. I didn't have any answers to this day. I'm not sure I could answer those questions, but I think it's important that we ask those questions and examine our relationship, examine how these things are part of our life. The inquiry is more important than the answer sometimes. And so the entire book was conversations between this half of my brain and that half of my brain. And uh, I thought it's either a dreadfully, embarrassingly earnest book or it's very good, but I couldn't tell which until Betty Ballantyne bought it and turned around and said, you know you will win the Hugo for this. I thought, it's, is it really that good? And she said, yeah. Um, no, but I came in second to Isaac Asimov. But, uh, it's not bad company. Uh, you know, coming in second to Isaac Asimov is no disgrace not either. At all. Yes. And it's... Um, the thing for me, it's, uh, it's the best of science fiction is there is that sort of veneer of, of, of science and technology, but it does, as you come down to it, it's, it's the questions about humanity. The, the relationship between Harley and David as they're talking to each other, and they've got some questions. And when it goes to um, talking about love and talking about death, um, it's very central to that whole book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, you don't really start to do this self-examination of your life and your soul until you have something to examine. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I started looking, well, what is my voice? What is my theme? What am I doing here? Am I wasting my time? Or, or is, is anything I'm doing actually making any kind of an impact? This is called the imposter syndrome or self-doubt or just a natural paranoid insecurity that's normal for human beings. Um, and, I, uh, and I looked back and I said, well, 
the whole of science fiction is about questioning. It's, it's theology for the modern man, only it's not theology. It's the question of how does this universe work? What is our place in it? Who are we? What are we up to? And the very best science fiction asks that question mm-hmm. and postulates possibilities. So I thought that's, when I looked at Harley and the man who folded himself and a couple other things, I also let my hair down and just had some fun writing some just old-fashioned <laughs> space opera because it was a great place to practice the mm-hmm. craft and learn. Because I did not know how to write. Um, and uh, I have to tell this story. My first writing class in a junior college, the first two years was a junior college, and the first writing class the instructor said to me, you're wasting your time, you're wasting my time, you'll never make it as a writer, you, don't, you have no talent, you're just, you know, you're just never going to get there. And, uh, uh, and he was brutal. Mm-hmm. And by the time I found out he was right, it was too late, I was making too much money. <laughs> so I figured I'd better learn how to write. Mm-hmm. And I started seriously paying attention to um, what other writers... I was hanging out with guys like Harlan Ellison and Theodore Sturgeon and, and Robert Block and, and uh, Harry Harrison and, and Annie McCaffrey and Joanna Russ and, I was, and Sam Delaney. My God, he's great. And uh, listening very carefully to what they were saying about writing <clears throat> and then going home and trying to practice it. So, uh, yeah... Um, I figure um, after uh, three Hugo nominations and three Nebula nominations, I better learn how to write. You better. (laughs) Keep trying. Yeah. I'm getting there. No, seriously. I I am finally, uh, this last few years, I've been doing some stuff where I think I am finally starting to get to the level of writing that I always wanted to achieve. Great. Yeah. Uh, That may be a delusion, too. (laughs) Well, Harley, another way I want to look at but flip it to the technology side. You came back and you, you uh, revised it in 89. Yeah. And, and when you wrote it first, the state of computers at that point was quite different than I I had not laid my hands on a computer ever mm-hmm. when I wrote When Harley Was One. Um, when I rewrote it, when I revisited it, I had already built, I had been building computers since 1977. Mm-hmm. and programming and beta testing and writing my own programs in uh, Turbo Pascal because I'll be damned I was going to learn C. <laughs> what a crazy mixed-up language that is. And anyway, so, uh, uh, yeah, so I was, and I was really having a lot of fun with computers. It ate up a lot of time where I could have written another 10 books. But um, uh, the... And I don't do that anymore. I'd rather just sit down and, and do, get some work done. Um, uh, I, I go in. I was in the Microsoft shop this afternoon. And I said, I don't want to know this. I just want to get some work done. I'm tired of building computers. <laughs> and they fixed it. And we're in. But, um, yeah, once I understood the principles of software versus hardware and programming and algorithms, I, I realized something else about Harley. And the ending that I came up with when I rewrote it it, it literally uh, left me speechless. I, 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 there is this, I, I typed it and looked at what I had typed and realized, why didn't I realize this before? But this is where the book was always headed. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil it here. No spoilers. But it is available on Amazon <laughs> as an e-book from Ben Bella. 
And it is one of those things where, as technology grew, I think you asked different questions. Yes. And so as you come to that point, and I won't spoil it too, it was, I realized, oh, I'm yeah. at this point. And it's a very sort of... And it's still, it's still true. Satisfying we are, we are on the threshold of yeah. that moment. Yeah. We are on the threshold of that moment uh, that is called the singularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something on the other side of that singularity that we don't know how to predict it. I, I don't even believe in the singularity. I think we, it already happened and we didn't notice it. Yeah. Series there, and it's all it's yeah. all with us now. And Harley, uh, like the Tribbles, and we'll, we'll come back to Harley a couple of times. Harley comes back in your work a number of times, we'll, but we'll come back to that in a, in a little bit. I yeah. want to jump back because the Tribbles come back. You are the Tribbles. Oh. You you are. Um, well, we have been planning a a sequel to the Tribbles in the third season of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Now. I won't go into the whole backstory here. It'll go into my Star Trek. Into, I'm writing a Star Trek memoir called "If You Had Wanted Me to Say Nice Things About You, You Would Have Treated Me Better." Um, <laughs> but uh, um, we had planned. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had said we'll do a sequel to the Tribbles because they're so popular. But behind my back, he was he was very upset because he felt that Gene Alcoon had let the show become too silly, mm. and he had told Fred Freiberger, "Star Trek is not a comedy." And so Fred Freiberger's first words to me, first meeting, first words were, uh, I screened Tribbles this morning. I didn't like it. Star Trek is not a comedy. Okay. Uh, Fine. He's the producer. I didn't want to do another comedy. I want to do an adventure anyway. That's what I brought in. But uh, this startled me as it being one of the, uh, probably one of the rudest introductions I'd ever had with any producer anywhere. And, all these years later, I was like, man, uh, okay, uh, I, if that's how social skills work in Hollywood, I'm, maybe I'm in the wrong place, because uh-huh. <laughs> uh, my grandma taught me better. <laughs> they just didn't teach them. No, that was, it was just a weird, a weird introduction. But the, but the premise of the idea of coming back, when the when, animated When we show. went to the animated show, NBC had wanted to bring Star Trek back right away. They realized they'd made a mistake, and Paramount said, no, we're making so much money in the syndication that we don't want to compete with ourselves anymore. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to do it. And it wasn't until a few, in 77 that they started talking about bringing it back as a TV series, and then they said, oh, let's do this. This Star Wars thing made some money. We should do a movie. Um, and the audience for it, it was a kind of a... We had a Star Trek phenomenon that nobody recognized was there. We had a lot of fan mail coming in, and there was the Save the Star Trek, you know, Get It Renewed Mm -hmm. campaign that John and B. Joe Trimble were responsible for, and and they got Star Trek renewed, but nobody, which nobody had ever done that. Fans had never done that before for any TV show. But... um, the networks and the studios had no conception of what kind of a phenomenon was about to happen. And so when Star Trek was in syndication, it was no longer on too late for the kids. Mm-hmm. And there was 3, three o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. And a whole new generation of kids who had not been allowed to stay up late discovered this show in syndication, and there it was stripped five nights a week. You'd be home, you know, moms loved this at the kids' home in time for dinner. <laughs> and uh, if you don't finish your broccoli, no Star Trek. Okay. And it worked. I ate a lot of broccoli. <laughs> and, oh, yes. God. Anyway, so uh, uh, what happened was uh, Star Trek fans would show up at the science fiction conventions 
And the true fan would look at the Star Trek fans and say, well, they're not real science fiction fans. They're Star Trek fans. They're Trekkies. The other thing that freaked them out was a lot of the Star Trek fans were women. And up till this point, science fiction fandom was like 95% male and 90% and 90% virgin. So have, I'm not kidding. And so a woman walks in the room and there's this kind of, oh God, you know, it's alien. And, and here, here's all these beautiful, eager, happy, excited young women coming to science fiction conventions. You could just watch these older guys, you know, I mean, if you think Dr. Sheldon Cooper was, you, trust me. Okay, anyway, and, and, and so they, they didn't know how to deal with all these wonderful young women coming in. And so... A lot of the, the Star Trek fans, and mo- it was mostly the women, I have to give them credit, said, well, if we're not welcome in science fiction, we'll just have our own convention. We'll have a Star Trek convention. Now, up till that time, the largest world science fiction convention had been 2,000 people. The first Star Trek convention, the Commodore Hotel in New York, had 3,000 people. The second had 5,000 people. The third had 30,000 people. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, uh, we get a call from Paramount. Uh, Dorothy Fontana and I, Lou Mindling, who is head of marketing, says, come in for lunch and meeting. We go in. He says, explain this Star Trek fans to me. What the hell is going on out there with the conventions and the fanzines? And we had to teach him about fanzines and, and how the conventions worked. And, and it was a spontaneous thing. And, and that the conventions were paying money for first-class plane tickets, you know, and, and, and paying fees to have the actors come in and... And, and that the Star Trek conventions, those first few, here's the entire cast mm-hmm. and, and, and several of the writers and, and even Bill Tice, the costumer. And, and I think uh, uh, the ones in L.A. Um, brought in as many of the behind-the-scenes people as we could get. So uh, the, the fans loved it and the whole Star Trek phenomenon. Uh, uh, the, the fans would network. They'd share fanzines. They, they wrote pornographic fan fiction. They, <laughs> There's quite a lot of study on that. There's a lot of study on that, though. I can tell you a story that, about how crazy some of those were, but I won't. And, um, uh, uh, but uh, we realized, and I kept saying, when is this going to be over? The show got canceled. It's going to die away. Challenge accepted, David. So, uh, <laughs> um, the 70s, uh, we just said, well, let's just enjoy it. I mean, this has never happened to any TV show before. And um, uh, we had no idea. Okay, well, let's, let's see it again. Let's take a little look. Let's have a, at, let's have at, a look. It's Star Trek animated. The interesting thing is, is Dorothy Fontana, who was producing this, said, uh, I will hire Star Trek writers, people who know Star Trek. So she brought back... People like Sam Peoples and Larry Brody, myself. Uh, uh, she brought in Larry Niven and uh, uh, Norman Spinnerett. I, I, I'm blanking out on it. Anyway, but um, so we were told, write a Star Trek episode. You're going to have to write almost as many pages as for a primetime episode because animation moves faster. Hmm. And so uh, we were writing as if we were writing the real Star Trek uh, and uh, it, this is one of the reasons why it holds up so well, is that once you get past the very limited animation and recognize, yeah, it's quaint, you're still seeing a pretty good story. Yeah. Um, you know, I have the, the set and, at home, and every so often I'll look at a few of the episodes, and yeah, that was fun. Well, doing things that you're told that you cannot do or taking on challenges, let's 
I'd like I, to talk I, about I, when one. somebody oh. says the word "you can't," uh-huh. I say "challenge accepted," uh-huh. and and uh, uh, that's how I adopted my kid. Is that's I knew I the world was going to say, and here I am. I was forty-eight years old, and a single gay uh, middle-aged guy comes along and says, "I want to adopt a kid." In nineteen ninety-two. And uh, uh, the culture was not geared up with, oh, wonderful, welcome. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, oh, really? And, um, but one of the things I do in life is research. 90% of what I do is research. The other 10% is planning revenge. <laughs> what do you think writing is? Writing is getting even. So um, um, uh, I... I Realized I had always wanted to adopt. My, my grandmother had fostered kids, and my favorite uncle was one of the kids she had fostered. And uh, uh, I had aunts and, uh, who had, and uncles who had adopted kids. And so in my family, uh, there were almost as extended family, there were almost as many adopted kids as handmade ones. So, um, so I, had, I thought, you know, it's a great thing, you know, to adopt. It was, and uh, um, I saw a, a thing in the paper um, about an adoption fair, and it reminded me that it was on my bucket list, you know. And I thought, gee, I better do it now because I'm not getting any younger. And uh, I did my research, and uh, I found this picture of this uh, most wonderful little guy in, in an, a listing of kids awaiting parents. And they had asked me, what kind of a kid do you want? What kind of, and I said, uh, tall enough to dust. <laughs> <laughs> And, and they said, seriously, I said, I don't want to deal with uh, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. I don't want to deal with hyperactivity. I don't want to deal with sexual abuse. I just, you know, I want, you know, four or five or six, that's, you know, out of diapers. Just that would be fine. And then I see this picture and they say he's eight years old. He may have fetal alcohol effects. We're not sure. Um, He's been uh, abused. He's emotionally disturbed. He's hyperactive. He's all the things that you listed you didn't want. And I'm looking at the picture, and all of a sudden, and this kid has such a big heart, such an adorable face. And I'm saying, you know what? If I was this kid's birth parent, I would be dealing with his issues. I've got to stop being a jerk. And there's a thing, in, 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 I'll backtrack. Mm-hmm. My sister had given me this ugly little puppy, and, and, and she had a deformed lower jaw, a terrible underbite. And I was almost didn't want to take her. And here she is jumping up and down in my lap and licking my face. And I'm going, yes, yes, I get it. Ugly puppies need love, too. <laughs> and it suddenly hit me. This puppy didn't know she was ugly. She was just the most affectionate little puppy. And she grew up to be the most best dog, one of the best dogs I'd ever had, most playful and affectionate. And I realized I have to stop being a jerk, wanting the perfect little, you know, blue-haired, blonde-eyed baby, whatever. And... Um, <laughs> And so later on, when I, they start explaining to me this kid has these issues, I said, I'll take him. And, I, and, and, I, and part of me is saying, either you just said the stupidest or the bravest thing in the world. I'm not sure. And it was years before I even knew, had a hint of the answer to that. But um, I said, let me have five minutes with him. And if he's got a big heart, I'll know it in the first five minutes. And I met him. And in the first five minutes, I fell in love with him. He was just absolutely the most, not just adorable, yeah, he was cute, but he had such a big heart, and he was anxious and desperate, and he was honest and open and authentic, and he was sharing with me his entire life. And I, I, I got it. This kid knows how, this, how the whole thing works. And, uh, and they asked me, are you planning to write a book about adoption? I said, oh, hell no. <laughs> And, and, um, but he was placed in my home 
And uh, uh, after, and the only time I knew what he looked like was when he was asleep. The rest of the time, there was this blur. Um, but uh, because of all the research I had done, I, I was like almost a half step behind him. So I was keeping up. And, and um, he's 31 now, by the way. He turned out great. Um, but uh, one night, I, 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 I snuck into where he was sleeping and just sat in the chair opposite and watched him sleep for a while. And, and, and I'm doing this whole, wow, I'm a dad. How weird. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I was like, you know, I don't even believe this. I got a kid. That, you know. And I went back to my computers late, you know, and I started writing about how much I love my little boy. That's the entire story is I love my kid. And, I, and, and we had been playing this game that he was a Martian. We had kind of stumbled into this game. And, uh, but it gave him a reason for being different from all the other kids around him, which he sensed because of everything he'd been through. But now he had a story why he was different. And so I started writing a story about my kid as a Martian. And it was just another one of those things. I finished it and I said, either this is embarrassingly earnest or it's brilliant. I have no idea. And it was rejected by six editors. Uh, and they all said, well, you know, with David, it's, I don't know. And Christine Catherine Rush published it in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And we started getting the most incredible letters. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, um, I guess maybe it's not embarrassing. And next thing I knew, we, uh, we were going to New York to pick up a Nebula trophy and... Um, I forget what convention it was. We got the Locust Readership Poll, and then we went to Scotland and won the Hugo Award with the story. And I the thought, science fiction equivalent. The, I mean, the, the, the uh, trifecta. It's yes. the three biggest awards in science fiction. Yes. And I was just kind of... Um, and my attitude to this day is I wouldn't mind winning another Hugo, but I'm not adopting any more kids <laughs> either. Um, but uh, uh, it was, I, I did not set out to win a Hugo. I, I, I was just, I'm going to share a story about how much I love my kid. And for, it was a breakthrough story because it, it, was, it, it took me to a place I'd never been before. And mm-hmm. I started using our experiences in other works. I, we were, went to Canada one time and they pulled Sean aside and started quizzing him about why, where's his mother. And... Um, and I had told him he didn't have to ask. He didn't have to answer when people ask him questions about his background, his past. That's his business, no one else's. And I said, tell him something like she's living with Elvis or aliens abducted her. And, and I will back you up. You don't have to tell anybody about you know, what you've been through. And uh, so this guy, this Canadian customs official is, is quizzing Sean and saying, where's your mom? And I'm sitting there thinking, I think I'll just let this play out, see where he's going. <laughs> and Sean says, she was abducted by aliens, and she's living with Elvis now. <laughs> and the guy looks at me, and I say, yep, I saw <laughs> Beamed her right up. And now, and now he's getting... And finally, after he, start, he starts really getting suspicious, I said, look, it's a single-parent adoption. I have the adoption decree right here. <laughs> And I'd been sitting on it the whole time because I just wanted to see where he was going to go. And he says, well, you know, we get these child custody kidnappings. I say, well, we are here to work on a show called Space Cases. And I told the guy at the desk that my work permit is on file here. And you should not have wasted my time. My kid's up two hours past his bedtime and I'm tired from the flight, too. And uh, 
I figured if you were going to waste my time, I was going to waste yours. And I was, you know, I was a little more tactful than that. But, and he said, oh, you're working on space cases here. Peter David left this here when we quizzed him and about his kids. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so I used that uh, as the basis. I, I had loved the Heinlein Juvenile, so I wanted to write one myself. Mm-hmm. So I wrote Jumping Off the Planet which is about a father kidnapping his three kids and taking them to the moon. Oh. He says, Mom won't follow us to the moon. <laughs> and <Yeah>. She does. Yeah. <laughs> and, and used the novella and became a novel. Yeah. And then the novel... Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, the novella won some award, I don't remember. By then I was actually starting to win awards instead of come in second and stuff. So. But I, I, I'm not an award junkie. You know, mm-hmm. I get these, I, I, my, there's a shelf where they're all, where all the plaques are stacked up and, and, then, and then there's a bookcase tucked off in a corner somewhere that has a Hugo and a Nebula and a Stoker and a Skylark. And, and, you know, it's like, okay, you know, it, these things have to be dusted, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that uh, as I read uh, The Marsh Child is the questions between, again, David and, you know, yeah. the Martian child are much like the questions of you and Harley. You yes. know, and they're going back, and it's it's almost in this case where you know you're you're learning more about what it is to I be a father. Ha- and me and my be... son have a relationship so good, I'm jealous of myself. And mm-hmm. we have we have a, a lot of back and forth conversations. Sometimes I'm just talking him down because he gets so annoyed with the rest of people, <laughs> other people, just not having integrity. But yeah, um, I, I say to him, I said to, we, had, we went out to dinner and said, I've learned more from you than you ever learned from me. And so I'm grateful. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I said it in college. I said to someone, he said, I'm, you're a jerk. But I said, no, all of life is a learning experience. It goes, oh yeah, right. But now, you know, here it is. Oh my God, am I really that old? 50 years later. And I'm saying, yeah, all of life is a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's just, you know, that thing, you know, when you're ready to learn, the universe will provide a teacher. Well, it's mm-hmm. even when you're not ready to learn, the universe is throwing teachers at you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and the best, one of the best teachers was Sean. I had to learn how to listen in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. I had to learn how to listen to where he was coming from. You'll, you guys, anybody in here is a parent yet that you know about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> only a couple. Uh, those, uh, the, according to the actuarial tables, most of you are going to end up with kids at some point in your life. Uh, you will learn more from them than they will learn from you. But your job is to be a role model. It's not what you say, it's how you behave. There, I just told you everything you need to know about parenting. That and never lose your sense of humor. And in the book and in the movie, in different ways, Harley returns. Yes. As a character yes. in the movie that is uh, sort of a, a friend and a, a, and a confidant and... And in the novel, Harley gives you the chance. You get that chance in, in a nonfiction way to talk to Harley and talk to your other side of your brain. Yeah. And talk about the things that were the trouble with I mean, it was not... What, it's what a happens, very sweet story that you see the troubles that raising a kid on. Yeah. Uh, what happened is I had this wonderful typewriter, an IBM Selectric, which it was it just the world's greatest keyboard and there's a little infuriated golf ball that brr, 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 and the text appears on the page magically in, in 1966. <laughs> this is a pretty heady stuff. This is a, and, and I loved typing on it. So I, I just would be happy physically. 
and watching the words appear. And, and so there was this relationship. I w- there was a time when I was sure that the typewriter was sentient. <laughs> and uh, I could have written a great story about that, too. But instead, it became Harley. The, the typewriter was a personification of Harley. So later on, uh, when I did the rewrite in 1988, whatever it was, uh, the introduction is, can I still get in touch with Harley? I'm working on a computer. And there's a conversation. Hey, boss, this is a great new place. And so uh, um, then when I did The Martian Child, uh, it is it is uh, from the point of view of a science fiction writer. It's very autobiographical. It's like, how do I deal with this? I wish I had Harley here to talk to. Was, oh, I do. <laughs> and so he shows up in the novel. Harley shows up in a lot of my stories. He's in the whole Jumping Off the Planet trilogy. He shows up in The War Against the Tor. Um, he shows up in uh, the the um, Star Wolf trilogy. Um, I'm not sure where else I'd lost track, but you're right. He does show up in the Martian show. I, I think there may be a couple books I've written where he doesn't show up, but uh, but he's just a uh, he's a he's a running gag. Yeah. So uh, basically, Harley is this uh, creates moral dilemmas for the people who have conversations with him. Mm-hmm. Good. I want to, at this point, if there are questions from the audience. Question? Yes. Yes. Hi there. Hello. Oh, okay. Hi. Uh, love Star Trek. Love Twilight Zone. I'm also a huge fan of Babylon 5. And I saw that you're the writer of Believer. I have. Ma- yeah, I did Believer's episode for uh, Babylon 5. And I did a couple episodes for the uh, 1986 Twilight Zone. Oh, you did. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Believer's? And yeah, that's a fun story. Yeah. Uh, there's a show called Babylon 5, and in the first season, Joe Straczynski had Harlan Ellison as the creative consultant. And uh, they called me, they said, we have a script assignment for you for Babylon 5. I said, great, I'd love to do it. And I go up to Harlan's house, and, and we're sitting, and they say, we want you to do the story about the parents who won't let the doctor operate. And, oh, crap, give me a break. <laughs> Everybody's done that. It's the biggest cliche, and the doctor always finds a way to save the kid. Not we. And they said, no, David, you have to do it. <coughs> I don't want to do it. And I argued. I said, I don't want to do it. Give me something else, anything. You know. And they said, no, no, this is the right story. And so I said, okay, can I kill the kid? And he said, what do you mean? I said, come on. The, every other time where they do it on Star Trek or Bonanza or anybody, they always find a way to save the kid. I think that's a cop-out. With everybody believing they are so self-righteous, whether it's the doctor or the parents or, or the religious leaders or who's ever involved, they forget there's a kid's life at stake. So let's go the distance and let's kill the kid. And they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, that's it, that's the story. So uh, I blocked it out that the parents go to all the different alien races on Babylon 5 asking for help. Please don't let the doctor operate on our kid, blah, blah, blah. And all the different alien races have their own reasons for not getting involved. And, and the doctor operates on the kid. And the parent's religious belief is such that the kid has now damaged his soul. He's been punctured and his soul has escaped. And they kill the kid. And uh, uh, the episode is about everybody's belief, but it's also about the doctor's belief. And there's a line in there about, you doctors are always playing God. And the doctor says, yes, that's what you want us to do. And um, Joe shot it 
with almost no changes at all. He said, okay, this is it. And I think there was one line he changed or one minor scene. And there were four lines he asked me to cut, which I had put in deliberately. There's uh, one point where the parents are saying goodbye to the kid because they know he's going to die. And, and they say, when you were so young, we had a choice between uh, uh, having a feast or raising you. But when you were so small, there wouldn't have been enough to go around. So we decided to raise you. And Joe says, what is this in here? There's an alien race. He says, could you take it out? I said, yeah, I'll take it out. I, just wanted, I was just having some fun. I knew it. there are some things you put in a script just to see if you can get away with them. But you're ready, you're ready to take them out. So. So, but yeah, I was very proud. Now, here's the punchline. So I'm writing the, the, the script and I'm writing it at three in the morning and I suddenly get this, the, the scene where they're saying goodbye to the kid and I get this chill up my spine and I had to walk to the other end of the house and make sure sh- my son Sean was all right. Oh. And, and yeah, he was fine. It was me who was like going through this thing, you know. And I went back and I picked up the phone at three in the morning and called Joe Straczynski. What is it, David? I said, now I know why you wanted me to write this script, you son of a bitch. And hung up and finished the script. (laughs) That was why, because I had just adopted Sean only a few months before. And I hadn't put it together why they had, they wanted somebody who understood parenting. God knows why they thought it was me, but... They wanted a parent to write this script, and they were right. And, and the thing is, is, if I had it to do over again, it would have been a much more brutal and much more emotional script. But uh, um, I was being very careful with the Babylon 5 structure at the time. But I'm very proud of it. I think it turned out well. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, as I was walking over here from my office in the theater building, I confirmed via text that this was... Indeed, the question I asked of my dad when I was seven years old, watching The Trouble with Tribbles for the first time. So they clean up the Enterprise by beaming the Tribbles over to the Klingon vessel. What do the Klingons do with the Tribbles? Soup. No! I don't know. No! It's a a shaggy dog story. It's one of those stories where you're not supposed to ask that question. (laughs) For me, it's... The question is, after this long journey of 50 novels, for example, what would you consider were the greatest challenging challenges that you have, three of the most important challenges? Well, as a writer, the most important challenge is the blank page. Um, the second challenge I would list, by the way, that is a great question. Thank you. Uh, the second challenge I would list is getting out of the house and actually having a life. Uh, I know a lot of people who just sit alone and type, and their writing is kind of stunted. And I think that a writer has to have something to write about. Uh, it was uh, Plato, I think it was quoting Aristotle, but I wasn't there, said the unexamined life is not worth living. And my take on it is the unlived life is not worth examining. So you need to get out and have some adventures. Um, and, and life is a choose-your-own-adventure. So I think there's a certain ambition to learn what is going on with the rest of the human race. Connect to other people. Find out who they are. Fall in love. Fall in hate. Um, but don't be this emotionally stunted thing that doesn't have a life. 
because then you have nothing to write about. So my, uh, I would say be ambitious in life. And the third one mm-hmm. is the status quo is the enemy. Make, you have to make a difference. You have to take on a challenge, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be a big, you don't have to remake the whole world. But yeah, but, and in my case, it was, I'm going to take on the challenge of adopting this kid. And his life will be a life he loves living because I am his dad. And that is, it's a very small piece, but it, it, it's a possibility that it says, here's a possibility, children deserve parents. And I have been an adoption advocate, and I've spoken at parenting conversa- uh, uh, conventions and, and adoption conventions. And, and, I, and there's that little piece that I think uh, where I can make a difference. And I get emails from time to time. I just got one last week from people who say, your book helped us make the decision to adopt, and we've just had two kids fostered with us and so on. So that, to me, says, okay, I don't have to make the biggest difference, but I've made a difference that helps other people. So that's the... The, the, the third challenge, the status quo is the enemy. Don't settle. Don't, there's, you know, there's this phrase, the comfort zone. There, it's not a comfort zone. It's the zone of resignation. It's where you gave up. It's what you settled for. And where you produce results is in the risk zone. You gotta not, uh, uh, commitment is the willingness to pre- uh, be uncomfortable in the pursuit of results. So uh, that's my personal mantra. I hope that answers your question because... You kind of caught me by surprise with that one. It's a great question. I'm going to be thinking about that one for a long time. I might even write about it on Facebook. I'm known for... Does oh. anybody here follow me on Facebook? Nobody. Oh, you're missing all the fun. I go on... It's like, it's late at night and I go on these 2,000 word rambles. And they're wonderful. And that was like, early on, it was a connection of like, a reconnection with your writing. Yeah was reading your Facebook postings, and I had never seen someone who was like so prodigious. There was well, so it's, much it's, to there. It's practice. Um, <clears throat> um, writing is about using the language accurately and precisely. So you have to become a student of language. You have to, what is the rhythm of the English language? Uh, it's iambic, by the way. Lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. But um, you become a, a student of linguistics, a student of semantics. You, you, what are all the different tricks that language is capable of? What can you do if you... I've written a book where you don't know the gender identity of the, hero, the protagonist. I won't even say hero or heroine. Uh, um, the, the protagonist is gender neutral. Um, it's, it's, and it was a linguistic adventure. So uh, one of the things... Um, I'll share this story. I, I was an art major for a couple of years. I got good enough to know I was lousy. And, uh, and I love the act of creation. I know if I had practiced my art for 50 years, I might be able to paint a picture, but it's, it's hard work. And, um, uh, but one of the exercises in one of the art classes is we, on Monday we would study the work of a, a, the, of a single artist, and then for the rest of the week we would paint or draw in that style. Picasso, Henry Moore, Surratt, uh, Rualt, um, and so on. And we would try on everybody else's styles. And so when I started writing, my, I started doing the same trick of trying to write in different styles to, to learn how the language, what the language was capable of. And, and now I, I'm to the point where I've decided I will never write the same story twice. Um, I'll do a sequel because it's part of the same story, but I will never, I, but I'm not going, I have no specific brand as much as I have this 
this, I, I, I'm, what, what challenge can I take on next that I haven't done yet? Uh, so I've done comic books, and I've done uh, anime, and I've done a play. Uh, I've done television. I've written some film scripts. I've written novels, short stories. And, and I've tried on every, di- every different voice I can, and I've got a dozen different voices that I still want to try on. Uh, you, now, look, as much as I want you to buy my books, I want you to read. I want you to support authors everywhere, not just me. There's a lot of great new authors coming along. And please... Do not ever give up the adventure of reading. And if you really want to expand your mind, reading is one of the best ways to do it. So I encourage you to support every author you come in contact with, even the clumsy ones, because they're in the process of learning. So, and thank you very much. You've been a great group. Thank you. And I want to thank you for coming here. This has been a wonderful night. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.